morning. Welcome to Rising. We have a huge show for you today. Just massive. We even have these new stickers. Uh, you called them sticks. <laughs> That's what the teleprompter. Oh, I thought that was like a cute thing you do, but you were just Absolutely reading what not. the script is. I was just angermanning the teleprompter. <laughs> Okay, well that's a disappointment. I thought that was like a cute little thing you did. It can be. Okay. It can be standing now, now Robbie. Now it is. Uh, what else do we have going on? Well, Dr. Trita Parsi will be here to discuss the $5.5 billion in aid to Ukraine pledged by the White House just this week. And Alan McLeod will explain how Facebook is aiding on the side of Ukraine in the fact check war. You'll never guess who's funding it. I bet I can. <laughs> but first, former President Trump said his Mar-a-Lago home was raided by the FBI yesterday, and they also accessed a safe from Trump's estate during the warranted raid. This is according to the Washington Post. The report states that the activity is related to an investigation into the potential mishandling of classified documents. Supporters of pr former President Trump showed up after news broke out about the search, and a crowd gathered with Trump flags. Amber Athey tweeted this point, a violation of the Presidential Records Act bars someone from running for office again. So could this be the end game behind the raid? According to the Times, the penalties for taking government files after leaving the White House include disqualification from holding any federal office, and that would bar Trump to return uh, to the presidency. Okay, so a lot to discuss here. My kind of broad impression of the raids is is just is I'm seeing so I don't agree with like the takes I'm seeing from either side right now. The Democrats are saying like yes, this is the end game. It was all leading to this mm -hmm. season finale, etc. <laughs> we got him, you know, it's coming. And uh, and Republicans are saying you know this is the gravest crime ever committed against a citizen of the United States. Banana um, Republic. Banana Republic. Yeah. Banana Republic. Uh, one of my colleagues separately didn't tweet it at a reason. Said it's a banana republic when they when they persecute when your enemies persecute you. It's a based republic when you persecute <laughs> your enemies. Um, okay. But there's been no transparency here. We do need to understand why this was done. The kind of state, like the classifying of, I mean, the president is allowed to declassify documents. So if it really is only that, you know, he has these documents, like that seems very much uh, nothing and that, or, or, or that, that this behavior is far too dramatic given how low stakes that is. So now if there's more to it, there's more to it. But it is not appropriate, to, in my view whatsoever, to not be transparent about this and to you know, kind of leave people to guess. And yes, I do think law enforcement uh, can be weaponized against people, is very, has its own agenda, DOJ, FBI, mm -hmm. DHS, et cetera. Uh, clearly are hostile to Donald Trump, and it is not at all out of the realm of possibility that there's some political persecution going on here. Now, and, and also that they engage, they violate people's civil liberties, they try to get them in perjury traps and all that to everyone. And my criticism then of Republicans is they only care. They only care about law enforcement abuses when Donald Trump is the target of them. Right. Why don't we care when it's anybody else? So there is an argument that the conservatives are making that there is a, a, an asymmetry between this unprecedented raid of a former president's house and the nature of the charges. I think this is the point that you made, mm -hmm. that ultimately, if it is about mishandling documents, why this? And the argument that's being made by some largely Democrats is that Trump hasn't been cooperating with this investigation. There was this reporting from Maggie Haberman at the New York Times that there was evidence of a, a destruction of docu documents, and there might be some urgency because of that. Of course, Republicans and Donald Trump, in his written statement, said that he had been co cooperating 
there mm -hmm. seems to be some tension there that will be resolved, I'm sure, as we learn more. Obviously, this rage just happened yesterday morning, uh, despite the, most of the footage being from the protesters ha uh, around, around Mar-a-Lago in the evening. Trump, we should say, was not at Mar-a-Lago. I believe he was in New York when this happened. Um, so the part that is also concerning to me is that so many Republicans are now apparently FBI abolitionists. I saw people as diverse as uh, Candace Owens saying, you know, we got to get rid of the FBI. How dare they do this? And yeah, it is frustrating as someone who has routinely and consistently been critical of the overreaches of the police state and the extent to which these um, organizations are often weaponized against low-income people and vulnerable people in particular, that only now is this a concern. When push come to, comes to shove, Republicans will vote in near lockstep to <laughs> reauthorize every one of these abusive behaviors. Yeah. From FISA to NHS to FBI to TSA, all of the routine violations we endure that they complain about when yeah. Donald Trump is the target are things they voted for and will vote for again because they've already done it yeah. number, a number of times. I wish they would live up to their rhetoric on yeah. this issue, and not just for Donald Trump's sake, but for everyone's sake. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I'm inclined to just go ahead and agree and take take the win. If we are suddenly <laughs> aware of the fact that the organizations can be weaponized against uh, people po for political reasons in these ways, great, because it's happened to Fred Hampton, it's happened to Martin Luther King Jr., it's happened to any number mm -hmm. of socialists and communist organizations. It's that happened to people you've right. never heard of. It's happened to just common citizens. Of course, of course. Yeah. And it is, it was, I was watching almost exclusively Fox News coverage of this last night, and the words Banana Republic were said over and over and over again. Um, discussion of how the FBI is now all of a sudden not one of the Blue Lives Matter organizations that people should be protecting and defending. Calls for violence against the state were routine on Reddit and on Twitter from the same folks who contended that protesting and property destruction in the context of Black Lives Matter was completely uncalled for. And I do think this is an interesting moment where people have to reflect on how I think that they don't actually have concerns with various types of protest and response. It is ideologically motivated. And we should just say that. You believe that it's right to react in a certain way when it's your guy at stake. You know, liberals and leftists believe it's okay to react in a certain guy when it's their issues or their causes at stake. And we should, we should talk about our ideological differences more than these proxy wars about, I don't like how you've protested, or I think that the way you're wielding speech or these government organizations is inappropriate. Yeah. Although I do think the broader point about um, political vindictiveness and weaponizing these organizations like the FBI and the CIA for political ends is a point that I hope Republicans hold on to for longer than just this moment. Yeah, but they won't because they never do. In this. So, you know, make no mistake. I, I, I don't even. I, I don't want to hear it. I want to see action, yeah. not just words. It's too much words. It's too much yeah. talk. Um, but you know, that said, it's it's going to be the the Democratic side of this, the law enforcement side of this, needs to produce immediately hmm. um, a, a stronger rationale for doing this kind of thing. Well, look, if the rationale was this, um, you know, to secure these documents. It is unprecedented to take this kind of a step to do so. But if the end game really is trying to dissuade Donald Trump from running for office because he has you know, violated a statute that some people think would preclude him from doing that. Now, there has been pushback. I saw Ben Shapiro arguing that you know, the, the statutory prohibitions against him running for president don't out, outweigh the constitutional requirements right. that are the bare minimum of being 35 and you know being native-born citizen and all that sort of thing. And so legal ex experts are weigh in on that. But if that really is the argument to try to preclude him from, from doing it, from running for office, 
strategically, I almost have to admire Democrats for actually doing something potentially effective in terms of the zeitgeist and the public perception of, you know, democracy and kind of fairness. It's not a great look. It's bad. It's real bad. And people are saying that, you know, this is going to encourage Trump to get in the race earlier. Apparently, he's being urged to go ahead and declare his candidacy to take advantage of this moment where people are feeling really chagrined. There's also been a robust conversation about what this means for Ron DeSantis, who arguably is going to be Trump's biggest primary challenge. And he, of course, was tweeting sympathetically in favor of Trump, in defense of Trump. And and my bottom line here would be that it is not, broadly speaking, law enforcement's job to decide who the next president is going to be. That responsibility belongs to the people or, at a minimum, to to its elected representatives who did weigh in on the question of whether Donald Trump was fit for office in the wake of January 6th. In my view, the answer is clear. No, he's not. And they should have voted to remove him from office, but they didn't. So again, like that was the mechanism. And that mechanism did not uh, did not take that corrective action. And so then it's going to be back in the people's hands if he wants to run. And so all of this could, I mean, tactically, it's the tactical considerations are really secondary here because this is a, a question of whether these what's going on is proper. But if you want to bring in the tactical conversation, this could massively backfire. This could make, I mean, I'm already seeing a lot of people saying, oh, if you know Trump beats this, he's going to be a shoe in for, and I don't know, I mean, this could be, end up being a one day news cycle if nothing comes of this. But so I, I'm very hesitant to endorse that view. But just as uh, you could, right, you could, if they're trying to make him ineligible for the presidency, they could make him more appealing as a candidate by well, making those, him more seem more victimized. Well, those of us who have been guarding uh, against overreaches into our civil liberties and have been warning about the overreaches by the police state for years are often told by conservatives that if you haven't done anything wrong, why are you worried about being investigated? If you right. haven't done anything wrong... Well, I heard wrong, that from Democrats yesterday over those new tax agents. Well, why, why are you worried about being stopped and frisked and patted down under Bloomberg's um, authoritarian New York regime? Like, why are you worried if you haven't done anything wrong? wrong. And I do think it's interesting, you know, to hear Republicans push back against that and the hypocrisy of that, because there is an argument, you know, I'm just mooting this out. There is an argument that, yes, proceed to, to try to take Trump out on a technicality, on a statutory technicality is undemocratic. But the reality of the situation is the statute, if the statute does provide that you preclude someone who's done something illegal and committed, broken the law in these ways for being president of the United States, well, there's the argument consistently with what the Republicans have been saying this whole time, that if you don't want to be precluded from having the normal democratic avenues to being president, don't break the law. It's a similar argument that people make about right. you know, undocumented people and folks in many and myriad other contexts. So I do think Republicans are going to have to contend with the fact that this is the first time that they've ever apparently been sensitive to the idea that you can have the criminal system weaponized against people in political ways. And it's not about whether or not you've committed a crime or done something wrong. It's about the selective persecution of people who do wrong things. And that's what, again, the liberal argument has been about these, you know, stop and frisk policies and other kind of um, uh, aggressive policing policies, that people use drugs at a, a similar rate across racial differences and all these other kinds of things. But when you heavily police some neighborhoods, you're going to get more hits um, in certain in certain groups and among certain demographics. And that's been used to create a whole uh, tiered uh, criminal justice system in this country for a long time. Well, Trump's popularity only looks to be gaining some steam over the weekend. He won the CPAC straw poll with 69% of the vote. 
followed by DeSantis with 24%. Trump has expanded his lead from the last CPAC poll in February when he received 59% support and DeSantis received 28% respectively. You know, take that with a grain of salt. It's not a scientist, it's a survey of CPAC attendees. Uh, he responded to the raid saying, quote, uh, after working and cooperating with the relevant government agencies, this unannounced raid on my home was not necessary or appropriate. It is prosecutorial misconduct, the weaponization of the justice system, and attack by the radical left Democrats who desperately don't want me to run in 2024. Meanwhile, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy tweeted, the Justice Department has reached an intolerable state of weaponized politicization. When Republicans take back the House, we will conduct immediate oversight of the department, follow the facts, and leave no stone unturned. Attorney General Garland, preserve your documents and clear your calendar. House Republicans also now calling for an investigation into the DOJ after the raid. None of these people, by the way, want Trump to be president again or run for president. Kevin McCarthy, mm -hmm. obviously Ron DeSantis, he wants to be president. He's mm -hmm. going to run for president. All of these people actually, secretly, they won't admit it, agree with the goals of the FBI here. Mm -hmm. They don't want Donald Trump. They think Donald Trump, um, they don't want to deal with him anymore, and mm -hmm. they think he it would be more likely to lose than Ron DeSantis. So they actually share the goal, but they can't say that because they know. Uh, and, and, and maybe then you can say maybe it's principled. They think this kind of thing is wrong, but it, and, and I agree that it is wrong. Mm -hmm. But then live up to the principle. The next time you're in power, actually curtail the abusive powers of these agencies. Please, please care about someone other than Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And one that Laura Trump uh, was making on Fox News last night, that this isn't just about a Democratic vendetta, that lots of Republicans, establishment Republicans, don't want Donald Trump to, to run. And people should keep their eye out for that particular alliance between the establishments of both parties against uh, uh, maverick Donald Trump. We'll see. All right, uh, we are going to have more rising right after this. Stay with us. I look forward to your radar coming up next, Robbie. What's on your radar, Robbie? All right, well, Mike is a millennials-focused news website, and in its decade of existence, it has endured pivot after pivot, first prioritizing progressive policy coverage, then expanding into lifestyle and cultural coverage, and ultimately focusing on video content for social media optimization. But after Facebook stopped rewarding upworthy-style emotional manipulation and canceled a deal with the company in 2018, Mike cratered, laying off most of its staff. But the site still exists. It has not yet pivoted to dust. In fact, it's now owned by Bustle, the same media company that owns the new Gawker, a media attack site that was previously sued out of existence after publishing revenge porn and other misdeeds that we've covered actually on the show because they're fun to talk about, as insane as they were. The current iteration of Mike, it, however, is clearly trying to recapture some of its former glory by punching above its own weight and has thus found an unsurprising target, Fox News. So a Mike writer named Rafi Schwartz recently uh, attacked Fox hosts Greg Gutfeld and Catherine Timp for condoning the recreational use of ayahuasca after Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers admitted to using and loving the drug, actually. Schwartz found it odd that Fox News was suddenly, quote, on board with ayahuasca, and he implied that the hosts were only approving of it for Rodgers, a, in his telling, a Trump-leaning himbo. Uh, that's how Schwartz described him and actually misspelled his name in the process, I noticed. But Schwartz is framing this as an example of hypocrisy, giving readers the impression that this Fox News duo would have otherwise criticized drug use if the subject were anyone else. But they're excusing it in this case because Rogers is a quasi-sympathetic figure on the right. He was critical of vaccine mandates. He's perceived, I don't know that he actually is Trump-liking or Trump-leaning, but he's perceived that way. 
So in any case, this framing is wildly inaccurate and totally unfair. Gutfeld, who hosts Gutfeld, one of the most watched late night shows in all of television, and Timf, who is actually now the top female talent on late night television following Samantha Bee's cancellation, they have actually long described themselves as libertarians on these issues, on drug issues. And just disclaimer, by the way, I appear frequently on Fox News, including on the Gutfeld program, friendly with both Greg and Catherine Timp, so that means you don't want to hear me defending them. Fair enough, you're forewarned friends of mine. Okay, if you're stick, still with me, I will continue. So both Greg and Catherine Timp have expressed the view that even heroin could be legalized. Timp has written in favor of legalizing marijuana, magic mushrooms, etc. Uh, I have spoken out against the war on drugs consistently and repeatedly throughout my entire career on television, in columns and speeches, as well as on social media, Tim told me in an email yesterday. I've repeatedly said that no drugs should be illegal, and I have never said the opposite. This is also far from the first time I have publicly discussed the potential mental, mental health benefits of psychedelic drugs. Schwartz also attacked her for describing ayahuasca as not like a party drug, as if she was trying to rationalize some unbalanced stance, uh, writing, Schwartz wrote this. It's important to note there's a fair amount of hypocrisy in Tim's ayahuasca enthusiasm, and particularly her assertion that it's okay since it's not like a party drug, as if other substances that could be easily written off as such don't also have their own medicinal, psychological, and cultural benefits, and even if they didn't, who cares, don't be a narc. Uh, all it took was a Trump-supporting, handsome, white-guy, multimillionaire athlete to get the ball rolling, Schwartz concluded. He did not respond to a request for comment from me. Tim's views, again, are neither hypocritical nor newly discovered nor due to Trump. She has long advocated legalizing all drugs, including both ayahuasca and party drugs. And she told me to accuse me of hypocrisy, given my perfect record of consistency on this issue, is absurd. So she notes that she was raised these issues with Schwartz, tagging him on Twitter, but several days later, he did not respond or correct what he had written. So writers who want to play media commentators should at least be able to fairly describe the ideologies of the personalities they are scrutinizing. Why is this so hard? Whatever one thinks of Fox News, it's undeniable that Gutfeld, Timf, uh, and a few other uh, hosts on Fox have actually consistently supported uh, drug legalization. Libertarians, like myself, are glad that this view has powerful advocates on the channel, advocates that continue to rightly press President Joe Biden to escalate the war on drugs. In fact, here's a question I have. Is anyone on mainstream and liberal TV outlets holding the Biden administration's feet to the fires on this? Look, I admit I haven't been watching very much MSNBC or CNN lately, so give me, forgive me if I missed it. I truly hope I'm wrong. My left-aligned colleagues here at Rising have been very vocal about the need to legalize drugs immediately. Ryan Grimm has talked about it frequently on his radars for the program, and I'm very glad for that. My cursory Googling of the subject of, for instance, legalizing heroin did not suggest that this subject gets very much airtime on CNN and MSNBC. Obviously, Fox talks about a lot of other things, too. Many Fox hosts don't share that view. But it should be celebrated that these people in particular talk about these issues. And there was no hypocrisy here, totally imagined. As usual, too many mainstream media and progressive journalists don't understand their perceived foes on the right whatsoever. They couldn't pass for them. They don't understand their views. The conservatives understand the progressives better than the other way around. And it shows in this media coverage that designed to tar someone as hypocritical, total fail once again. Yeah, so, I, I don't disagree with any of that, Robbie, except for the idea that conservatives uh, understand progressives or leftists more. I don't think they know. The whole world pretends that actual leftists don't exist. They do understand Democrats more than I think Democrats understand enough. them, though. Fair enough. 100%. And it is frustrating that the 
the, the conversation about um, drugs, the war on drugs, the, the decriminalization of drugs and legalization of drugs has become so obscured by the Democrats' right-wing approach on this subject, despite the fact that liberal commentators like Bill Maher accuse people like Joe Biden of being light on drugs and, and wanting to be hard on police. He has, in fact, done the exact opposite in the context of his tenure and while he was running for president, saying in the middle of the 2020 um, George Floyd protest, we need to fund the police harder and being not only the architect of uh, the U.S. policy on um, the drug war, but also continuing many of those policies while he has been in office, while plainly ignoring a newly forming coalition of libertarians and people on the right with the left, who has long advocated for reform in this area. So I've said it before, I'll say it again. So often liberals get themselves in trouble when they charge more than they can prove and when they treat their uh, ideological um, opponents as caricatures without engaging with them on the substance. And I know that it must be tempting to take someone like Gutfield's praise uh, of Aaron uh, uh, as kind of inconsistent with his broader worldview, because I do think that there's other parts of their emphasis and other parts of their programming that does show a kind of a lack of sympathy for other people who are caught up in the drug war, or at least ignoring mm -hmm. the other groups that are caught up, caught up in the drug war. But you have to you have to make the case that you could actually prove and not try to reason by implication, or you'll get caught up and called out in moments like these. What do you think is the reason for Biden being almost idiosyncratically, not uniquely at all, but just really bad on drug war issues, even out of, I mean, he's, I guess he's so old, he's out of step with certainly what young, what all young people, young liberals, young conservatives, everyone thinks should be done. But and he is really holding the line on, uh, on what, on keeping marijuana and then the, on the controlled substances at the, you know, most, uh, most serious, most stringently regulated at the federal level, substances, that kind of thing. Easy, easy fixes, tweaks. Yeah. You know, forget about legalizing heroin. I mean, I, I wish we would, but uh, yeah. the, the simple, the easy stuff, the stuff almost virtually everyone agrees on, he is holding the line on. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question and a frustrating one. It's come up recently in the context of the Brittany, Brittany Griner case, right? Yeah. Where he lacks the moral authority to be very critical of Russia sentencing her to nine years in prison for having um, legal prescribed doses of uh, mar marijuana, like vapor oil or whatever it was on her person when she traveled to Russia, when he's someone who has supported those same kinds of um, uh, in really uh, harsh policies here locally in the United States. Some people argue that because he was the architect of the crime bill, because he has been in Congress since he was 29 years old back in the 70s, he just can't get out of a different frame of mind. Some people argue that his own, you know, child's experience with drugs and addiction makes him unsympathetic to the idea of making them more accessible. But I recently did a show with a Columbia professor, uh, Dr. Carl Hart, on my own podcast where I talked to him about his open use of recreation, not, you know, all drugs are recreational, he would say, but drugs as, you know, perceived to be as serious as heroin. Um, and he is famous for being, you know, a Columbia PhD and professor and doctor who talks openly about how some of these drugs, all of these drugs need to be destigmatized, but especially the ones that have such high stigma like that. And I wish that were a bigger part of the broader conversation because I do think there's a lot of coalition building opportunities around this because people, I think, and of different racial groups, of different class backgrounds have struggled with addiction and understand that further stigmatizing and criminalizing what is a medical condition doesn't have uh, good outcomes. 
regretfully, uh, Greg Gutfeld is to the left of Joe Biden on this issue. And I hope that people raising these kinds of inconsistencies on the left uh, among liberals uh, hopes to change that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Like a billion, $200 million infrastructure project. Like what we're doing today, what we passed yesterday, helping taking care of everything from health care to God knows what else. But we're going to... Only God knows. That was President Biden yesterday touting the Inflation Reduction Act. Such an interesting name. Bill that's been criticized widely on the right and some on the left, namely Senator Bernie Sanders, have also criticized it. White House Chief of Staff, however, Ron Klain, fired back at the critics while on CNN yesterday. What are the Republicans offering about inflation other than speeches? What plans do they have to bring inflation down? In fact, they even voted on Saturday against a $35 a month cap on the price of insulin. So Democrats are fighting to lower the costs that families fa uh, face. Republicans stood with the corporations to say they shouldn't pay taxes, stood with the big drug companies to say they shouldn't bring them the cost of drugs. That's not going to help with inflation at all. In fact, that the Republican campaign chair of the Senate has actually proposed to raise taxes on working families. However, not all the White House staff appear to be on the same page. Biden's economic advisor, Jared Bernstein, got into a heated argument while on CNBC over the bill's potential tax hike on small businesses. Bernstein broke from Biden's promise that nobody making under $400,000 a year will be audited. Let's watch. I want to be clear. Wait a second. The you don't pay the minimum. Hold on. Wait a second. Under you don't pay. Correct. No, 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 no. That's not what I said. Hmm. According to CNBC, the first draft of the bill would have tweaked the taxation of carried interest or profits paid to private equity and hedge fund managers. But the rule didn't make it into the final text, which some are calling a loophole for the rich. That allows investment managers to pay a lower tax rate than their own employees and other workers. Democrats ditched the provision that would have raised $14 billion over 10 years, and one senior fellow at the Brookings Institution called it a real rich benefit for the wealthiest of Americans. So we should address the framing of that a little bit. Uh, the reason that Democrats took that um, part of the bill out that would have closed that loophole for the rich is because Kirsten Sinema was opposed to it. Uh, she wanted it out. She's terrible. Democrats are very frustrated at that. It's not as though Democrats as a whole wanted that provision out. And it should be noted that, of course, if even one Republican were to cross the line and actually vote for this bill, then it wouldn't have been all on Kirsten Sinema. So the idea that, that that's being kind of framed as mm -hmm. Democrats wanted tax breaks, you know, wanted, didn't want to close a loophole that allowed rich to get away with paying lower tax rates than their employees is a little bit of a misnomer. Right. All Republicans didn't want that. Right. Right. And of course, no Republicans voted for this. This is a fascinating postural reality, though, however, uh, because this is another one of those times, just like we saw last year with um, the American Recovery Act, where uh, Bernie Sanders attempted to push through genuinely populist programs that majorities of Americans want. The one that got the most uh, airtime here was this cap on insulin prices, because it is overwhelmingly popular to keep this life-saving drug at a low price. People were um, going back into the history of insulin, where the um, original patent was not protected. It was you know, sold for $1, because there was an understanding about how important this was and how life-saving it is. Bernie Sanders and others have been talking for years and years about how uh, insulin is a tenth of the price 
Canada as it is in the United States of America. You have a such thing in America called insulin debt because people with diabetes end up going into debt just to uh, afford this life-sustaining medication. And yet, and yet we can't get stuff like this in the bill because of this posture where uh, when there is an objection, uh, uh, this time by the parliamentarian, just like it was with the $15 minimum wage last year, even though the parliamentarian can be ignored and Republicans consistently have ignored the parliamentarian when they tried to do things like stop uh, George Bush from drilling in the Arctic, Democrats love to use the parliamentarian as an excuse not to advance progressive policies that everybody wants. So once the parliamentarian says that something is out of a reconciliation bill, suddenly it takes 60 votes to get it back into the bill. There's, of course, not 60 votes for anything. That's why we're doing a reconciliation bill, right? Everybody right. should remember this little, reconciliation. <laughs> this one neat trick to actually pass laws. Exactly. So what Democrats are able to do is to say, oh, we'd really like to have X, Y, and Z, but we're going to take it out, blame the parliamentarian, and then someone like Bernie comes along and says, well, Let's try to get it back in. But of course, you can't get 60 votes. And Democrats just throw up their hands and say, what can you do? And we get the bare minimum of the bill. Mm. Yeah. So uh, that's not the only part that progressives were upset about. The climate side of the bill also has some caveats. Friend of the show, David Sirota, pointed out uh, this clip of Joe Manchin bragging about offshore drilling included in this bill while on Fox News last week. We are cooking a higher rate of inflation right now ahead of wages. And even if everybody were to go out and get a job or two or three jobs right now, their wages can't keep up with what the cost of milk, bread, gas, so on well, and so forth. Don't you think we ought to get those costs down? How you do that? By uh, producing. You've got to produce your way out of this. You can't sit back and wait your way out so of it. So are you going to open pipelines? Absolutely. We're going to build pipelines. We're going to do more How drilling. are you going to sell We're, that to the president of the United States who on day one it's already been flipped sold the switch? Bought. It's already been. It's part of the deal. It's part of the bill. All you have to do is read the bill, Harris, and you'll see. You're not going to be able to do any more offshore wind or offshore uh, or onshore uh, solar and wind unless we're absolutely doing more production with drilling and extraction. So we said in an earlier segment that Republicans understand Democrats more than Democrats understand Republicans. This contravenes that notion. Here, Harris seems to believe that Joe Biden is going to have some issue with opening up drilling and thwarting the interests of climate activists. Absolutely not. <laughs> this is what leftists have been saying this entire time. He is no friend of the left. He is not your great socialist leader. He is no leftist. He is a corporate Democrat that is much more aligned with Joe Manchin and, frankly, probably Harris herself than someone like, like me. Wow. That's a... <laughs> <laughs> that's actually that's strong criticism from you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, look, Joe Manchin is completely right. Yeah. You don't have to sell Joe Biden on this kind of thing. The bill is signed, sealed, delivered. He's on board with all of these kind of interventions. It's the completely disempowered left that is leveraging criticisms in this moment, not the Biden administration. Uh, you weren't in uh, yesterday. Bachi was here instead. So I, I want to get your reaction to that. We talked about the, um, the new uh, tax collectors, the with billions of dollars for more IRS agents. What was your view of that? I think it is a pre-existing issue that the IRS disproportionately audits the poorest people in the United States of America. There has been a map circulating of concentrated concentrations of poverty in the country and a map of where audits take place. And it's like the yeah. same map in different colors. It's really galling. And I believe that- Defund profits, the tax police. Right. 
well, the, the, I believe the purpose of this, um, of adding new people to the uh, new auditors to the IRS is ostensibly to change that dynamic and have more resources to go after more affluent cases. Because some, one of the arguments is that it just, it's more difficult to prosecute affluent people because they hire accountants, they're, uh, you know, tax fraud, their their inability, their ability to get around the system is much more sophisticated. And part of why auditors focus on poor people is they're kind of like, uh, it's the path of least resistance, as it were. Um, whether or not that is actually a problem that will be remedied by hiring more uh, tax auditors, it's a, it's a good question. It seems like an incentives issue, and it's hard to change bad incentives within bureaucracies or yeah. you know, large organizations yeah. with little accountability. But I mean, there is, I think there is a problem that needs to be resolved here, regardless of whether or not you hire more auditors. And sitting here and saying, well, I object to more auditors being hired when you never articulated a frustration with the asymmetry of the auditing process before is a big issue. I, I absolutely think something needs to be done to make sure that affluent people are targeted more for the kinds of audits that should be, I would argue, the sole and principal concentration of an institution like the IRS. I would have fewer audits across the board, a, a more simplified tax code, so then there are less oh, people sure. deliberately or inadvertently um, engaging in fraud or engaging in wrong behavior. If the, the laws have to be simpler, because they're so complicated, everyone could be found. If you have enough, sure. enough people up in your business, enough bureaucrats looking at everything you've done, they'll find something wrong eventually. Well, you know, part of why the tax codes are so complicated, it's, it's the same thing that happens in the law and a lot of professional spheres. They are intentionally complex because there's a whole industry that's built up around yes. doing your taxes yeah. for you, and they lobby. To keep it complicated. With tons and tons of money every year, exactly, to keep Ugh, it complicated. Horrible, horrible. All right, more rising after this. After the Lafayette Square incident of 2020, where law enforcement officers used tear gas to clear Black Lives Matter protesters from the grounds, General Mark Milley, the chief of staff of the Army, wrote an undelivered resignation letter to former President Donald Trump, according to new reporting, in which he said, it is my belief that you were doing great and irreparable harm to my country. I believe that you have made a concerted effort over time to politicize the United States military. I thought that I could change that. I've come to the realization that I cannot and I need to step aside and let someone else try to do that. So this is all from a really big piece in The New Yorker called Inside the War Between Trump and His Generals. It has a lot of reporting on, on Milley, on John Kelly, and other people who were um, combative with Trump, uh, didn't have a good relationship with Trump. Now, this is the kind of piece where it's people recalling things that they claimed happened in conversations with Trump, where tr Trump obviously had no input in this article, was not interviewed for it, didn't mm -hmm. participate in it, these generals clearly did. So I'm not saying I don't believe these, many of these interactions happened. They certainly could have happened. But because th this is a journalism problem where sympathetic subjects of interviews mm. can craft and sculpt their responses so they sound smarter and more uh, better with their words mm. uh, in, in than they actually were at the time. Like, I don't believe some of these quotes exactly the way they're written. So give me, give me an example of something that seems kind of too good to be true if um, you can. Sure. Uh, so tr according to this, Trump said that he didn't want any wounded, um, formerly wounded servicemen in this in this parade. Um, he said it doesn't look good for me. He explained this is from The New York. He explained with distaste that at the Bastille Day parade, there had been several formations of injured veterans, including wheelchair bound soldiers who had lost limbs in battle. And Kelly 
could not believe what he was hearing. Those are the heroes, he told Trump. In our society, there's only one group of people who are more heroic than they are, and they are buried over in Arlington. Like, it's... it's so, okay, so I hear that, and I hear the Trump side of it, and that sounds fairly consistent with Trump's attitude towards Absolutely believe Trump would people. behave that way. Yeah. Okay. So your concern is that there's been a little bit of a guilty. The generals are trying to make the guilt exactly. for the general. They're trying to make themselves okay. look good. And they're political actors. They got uh, Trump should have told them to take a hike even more than he actually did. Actually, these are the people who kept us in Afghanistan uh, through Obama wanted to get out. We stayed in. They tricked him. Then they tricked Trump, even though Trump said we should get out. Finally, they didn't manage to trick Biden because he'd been around, I guess, the first time they tried to trick everyone. So I'm just sick of taking orders from the, the American people don't want these endless commit. They lied over and over again. They, they were bad military advisors. They had, you know, trying to accomplish this mission at all costs, even though the American people didn't want it. The, it was not worth it. We were, you know, the blood being spent, the, the money, nobody wants to do it. And they, we stood the course because of because of these people who are bad advisors. So I don't have, yeah. so they're trying to rehabilitate themselves maybe, mm. and I don't think they deserve that. I think that's perfectly fair. It, what's interesting to me is that hearing that, I'm much more interested in the Trump aspect of it than these military officers. I t completely take your point that we shouldn't respond to this by saying, yes, I love and uplift the generals the way the Democrats have done with so many figures. And in the, the media, era, that's exactly what they're trying to do. Look at how these responsible military right. people don't they, like they're Trump. They're trying to make heroes out of people like Liz Cheney and right. every, you know, is every exactly never Trump like Republican that. now has an MSNBC contract. It is what it is. But at the same time, you know, it. I don't want to miss the forest for the trees of the fact that Donald Trump, who is likely going to run for president again, does seem to have a lot of people who are very consistently describing him as someone who is so unsympathetic to uh, disabled people, people who have been literally yeah, injured in our wars, that he would do no way around it. Those kind of Not a good guy. Veterans, even. And it does strike me that the, the generals are doing a little bit of something that in a different context is framed as these kind of identity politics wars, where mm -hmm. so many, so often there are people uh, who are liberals who take some genuine instance of a, a kind of a problematic statement about a group and, and use that to kind of rehabilitate, say, well, they said this negative thing about me, therefore I must be rehabilitated, I must be the good actor. And it's not necessarily true, even if the underlying statement is legitimately bad and racist. And I feel myself often in this position where I, I want to say, yes, the, the bad thing was bad. The racist thing was bad. You shouldn't have said that thing. But also reluctant to allow the person's marginalized identity to absolve them from their issues. So a specific example, there were some criticisms that the left made of Lloyd Austin when he was first uh, joined Biden's cabinet. The revolving door, the Raytheon of it all, people mm -hmm. were very critical of that. And one of the liberal rejoinders was, how dare you leftist criticize a black man, you know, and there there does seem to be this like I I interesting way that there's other kinds of identity politics that are operated on by the by the right, including being a veteran, including being a farmer, including being from a rural state, a lot of these other kinds of things. And it's interesting to see these battles work themselves out and in similar formats on the right. I wanted to read one more uh, section from this uh, article. Uh, it turned out the generals had rules, standards and expertise, not blind loyalty. But like it's so it's just so celebratory of them. The president's loud complaint to John Kelly one day was typical. You effing generals, why can't you be like the German generals? Which generals, Kelly asked. The German generals in World War II, Trump responded. 
You do know that they tried to kill Hitler three times and almost pulled it off, Kelly said. <laughs> but of course, Trump did not know that. No, no, they were totally loyal to him, the president replied. In his version of history, the generals of the Third Reich has been completely subservient to Hitler. This was the model he wanted for his military. I mean, I take your point that it's a very bold thing for a general to insinuate that generals yeah. kill the president. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure, I totally believe that exchange went like that. Right, but, but I, uh, I, it's not implausible to me that Donald Trump would right. speak admiringly, even if it's only for Donald like, Trump saying reasons. crazy things is not the unbelievable yeah. part. It's that people firing back with these well-structured quips that makes them sound super intelligent and super knowledgeable at historic world historical events. Well, let me ask you like this. If he, if, he, if he launched into a Napoleon soliloquy, we would say, oh, yeah, that definitely happened. Well, let me ask you this, Robbie. Do you think that this is the beginning of a kind of skepticism you're going to see from the right of institutions, be it the military? And we're now seeing all the skepticism about the FBI in the aftermath of the Mar-a-Lago raid. Do you think that this is a kind of a staying power of, of institutional skepticism that the left has been embracing for a really long time and warning of these kind of power overreaches um, in the deep state and the military industrial complex. Is this something that's going to last or is it only a selective bias that exists in the Trump Oh, level? well, conservative voters have deep institutional mm. skepticism. They do. They hate and fear and distrust these institutions and a lot, in a lot of cases for good reason. Mm -hmm. Republican elected officials only pretend to have skepticism of these institutions. we've got Marjorie Taylor Greene posting the American flag upside down. I mean, we've gone, it's like whiplash from the blue but lives they, matter they, flag they, to they the upside down American they flag. They won't change a darn thing. <laughs> I, I, like, I, this is what I said during A Block. I, my yeah. distrust of them, they, it's all talk. All talk. Talk, 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 talk. At the end of the day, they vote to reauthorize the Patriot Act. They always do. So I, I would love if they, if, uh, if the, the legislators need to be made to reflect the basis skepticism of these institutions. But the law, may, so far, the, the Republican elected officials are only comfortable reflecting that um, skepticism vis-a-vis -vis defending Donald Trump personally. Yeah. Their, their massive investment, not in the structures, but in Donald Trump himself, uh, thwarts broader reforms that uh, Republicans and actually many on the left, civil libertarian left, would all support everyone doing. So that would be great yeah. if that happens. Well, look, we, I've, we've seen in my lifetime that the Republican voters have a great deal of power when they put their mind to it and decide to push back against the establishment. We saw it in the context of the Tea Party. The party, the party as a whole was radically transformed. So we'll see if there's a, some accountability that happens here that could, I think, make some positive changes for the long term and some useful coalition building between uh, the left and the right when it comes to, I think, to your point, the well-founded skepticism. I believe the House GOP or maybe it was the House Judiciary Committee or whatever, some Republican committee or, or party uh, Twitter account I, I saw tweeted about the raid on, on Mar-a-Lago. If, if they can do this to a former sitting president, imagine what they can yes. do to you. I think a lot of American people don't need to imagine what yes. they can do to you. It's being done to them. Yes. They already cared about it. You're the ones who need to get on board. Yes. Not the people. The people know. Yes. Uh, the Brianna Taylors of it all. Yeah, that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We actually had a great uh, discussion about that uh, yesterday. I encourage mm -hmm. everyone more interested in that miscarriage of justice, uh, although there is going to be some accountability for those police. Apparently, um, we had a video on that yesterday, so you should check that out. And we'll have more Rising right after this. 
Pink Floyd's Roger Waters found himself in hot water after criticizing the Biden administration for the U.S.'s involvement in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. In a recent interview with CNN, Rogers called President Joe Biden a war criminal for, quote, fueling the fire in Ukraine. Well, he's Let's fueling watch. the fire in the Ukraine for a start. That is a huge crime. Why won't the United States of America uh, encourage Zelensky, the president, to negotiate, obviating the need for this horrific, horrendous war but you're, that's you're, killing. You're blaming. How, we don't know how many you. But you're blaming the, the party Russians. that got invaded. Come on, you've got it reversed. Well, no, I, well that's that you. You know, any war. When did it start? What you need to do is look at the history, and you can say, well, it started on this day. You could say it started in 2008. Okay, it's basic. This war is basically about the action and reaction of NATO pushing right up to the Russian border, which they promised they wouldn't do when Gorbachev negotiated the withdrawal of the USSR from the whole of Eastern Europe. When you say this, then I have to say, what about our role as liberators? You of all people, with, you have with no role as liberators. World War II, World War II. You, you, you got into you World War II because it's Pearl Harbor. You, Pearl Harbor. You were completely isolationist until that sad, that devastating. I, I would argue awful we were always in, going to in get in, and that pushed us in. But thank God the United States got in. Right? Well, you lost your father well, in World War II. Thank God well, yeah, the United thank States. Good, but right? thank God the Russians had already won the bloody war almost by then. Don't forget, 23 million Russians died protecting you and me you from would, the Nazi you, menace. Hey, and you would think the Russians would have learned their lesson from war and wouldn't have invaded Ukraine. Well, you, you with all your reading, I would suggest you... Michael, <laughs> that you go away and read a bit more and then try and figure out what the United States would do if the Chinese were putting um, nuclear armed missiles into Mexico and Canada. The Chinese are too busy encircling Taiwan as we speak. Okay? They're not encircling Taiwan. Taiwan <laughs> is part of China. And oh. that's been absolutely accepted by the whole of the international community since 1948. And if you don't know that, you're not reading enough. Go and read about it. Okay. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> that was some fiery stuff. Uh, Waters appears to be one of the only celebrities against the Western war narrative and how it's impacting global affairs from the U.S.'s actions across the globe, including Taiwan and even the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, makes a lot of reasonable points yeah. in that interview. What was so fascinating is how this interview was framed by the kind of liberal, you know, establishment media mm -hmm. as, you know. And by the way, I, I like that guy. That's Michael Smirkanish. I've been on his, his show before. Uh, he, he has a lot of independent thoughts. I think I don't agree with the thrust of the question he was getting at here. Yeah, people but were go, pointing out yeah, that he's ahead. someone who was considered to be a fair, a fair dealer, mm -hmm. straight, straight down the middle, calling balls and strikes. But the, the media was framing this interview as, you know, uh, Waters defends Russia, Waters backs Russia. And the beginning of the interview was precipitated by a question um, from Michael where he was basically asking, you know, you have this montage in your concert of war criminals and Joe Biden's face is among them. Why? And Waters is like, well, because he's a war criminal. And that's what precipitated this whole conversation. So it wasn't out of the blue. That being said, it caused such a stir because it is so rare to hear anywhere on establishment media like CNN 
any of the precipitating events that are widely considered to be uh, the, the provocation to Russia. And again, that doesn't say that it is ever okay or right to invade another country. But the idea that we, uh, this was kind of a random event that uh, isn't a response to certain actions that could have not been taken by the U.S. The idea that adding more countries to NATO now is an escalation on the part of the West, that is largely absent from any of the Western media narrative. And so it really set off people's alarm bells when they were given for the first time some explanation for how we got into this conflict. Yeah, no, it was incredible. Uh, and he, he laid out the history there quite well. And then Smirkana tried to do that. Well, what about what about the Nazis? What about World World War II? Can I tell you, that upsets me so much. Hitler. The complete and total erasure of that, those 20-plus million Russian lives right. uh, in World War II, it comes up again and again in these kinds of conversations. I actually went to a uh, comedy show uh, over the weekend where uh, the opening, you know, the kind of opening song got out of the, the comedian, apartment, huh? I did. It was an, it was an outdoor okay. uh, venue. Okay. <laughs> Um, but uh, the, the opening segment was about how, uh, you know, when was the last time Russia was good? And, you know, all the animosity with Russia was about this, the space race and uh, how you know, they can't even win the space race. And every fact of it was wrong from the Russia having beaten us in almost every metric in the space race except for literally getting to the moon to this idea that we were the great big heroes in World War II. When's the last time the Russia's, Russia was right. good? I mean, we were I all, we all get to be of, the heroes in World War II. I, mean, I, think, I can think of so a lot of times when the Russia was the hero, but especially to ignore the whole World War II of it all. You know, I, I did an interview recently also with Norm Finkelstein on my show, whose parents were uh, Holocaust survivors, and he talks about how in his house, it, you could not say a bad word against Russians. You couldn't criticize Russians like that. And the idea that we've come so far from that because of the Cold War and because of America's distaste for, you know, communism, socialism, the Red Scare and all of that, uh, that we have erased this important part of American history. I'm very grateful to Waters for correcting the record in some respects here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he laid out the things that the U.S. has done that are, you know, are not helping to de-escalate this conflict. Yeah. And, and he was saying, right, well, you know, why does this aid not accompany a demand that if it's going to continue, they need to negotiate? Right. Because the only way this war ends realistically is with some agreement between Zelensky and the Russian government, probably losing uh, the Donbas or the, you know, the regions that were not really under under Ukrainian control anyway, right. and then and then this comes to an end. That's how the conflict will end. Everyone One way or who, another. who and he, and he was right to call it, you know, anyone who's read, who understands historical narratives or understands modern warfare, that yeah. it's not, like, they're not going to beat off Russia. Yeah. So... So we're just we're going to prolong this this war unless it's accompanied by more clearer demands for diplomacy. For, for diplomacy. Yeah. So why 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 is it crazy to say that? Yeah, it's so bizarre. And then that pivot to China at the end in an effort to pretend mm -hmm. as though you know there there is a real there's a real problem. Whatever you think about the bad actions of other people, and I know that leftists sometimes get criticized for you know focusing disproportionately on America's harms while ignoring the, the claim is that we ignore or downplay the bad actions that other countries take. And I don't intend to do that in the least. But I think the opposite is true in the context of the broader media environment. And that's why the left is so keen on right. emphasizing what America's role is in that's all of fair. these things, because otherwise there would be, wouldn't be a part of the conversation. So Waters just simply articulating the reality of the one China policy, articulating the reality of China's strategic 
the, the important, the strategic importance of Taiwan to China versus the United States on the other side of the world. The cultural ties and historical ties and you know political ties between those places. Well, to but pretend as though China is encircling Taiwan when many leftists, many people have been pointing out the genuine encirclement of American military presences around Taiwan and the region. You know, it's important for people to at least be having these conversations, and it's frustrating that it takes uh, a musician. That's fair <laughs> enough. I do. I do. I want to be careful here. I, I empathize with the desire of many Taiwanese to not be part of China. I also would not want to be ruled by the Chinese government, an authoritarian a human rights disaster that had, to my mind, the most dystopian COVID response of any major government on earth. Yeah, now, I, but I there also is empathize nothing... as an American who feels many aspects of our own country very dystopian, having the largest incarcerated. Uh, population in the entire world, including larger than China, despite it being three times bigger than the United States. Of now America. you are doing the thing leftists always I mean, do that I you mean, just said. You just but said. This is, but this is the problem. Like, I, I'm not going to play. I'm not saying one is worse than the other, but I am not going to talk about China's. Bad I, I'm comfortable saying one is worse than the other, but. Just because I, I can criticize both, I think the Chinese government is worse than the American government. But I look, I sympathize with. I, look, I don't want to. I don't want to govern people. Uh, period. This is actually a kind of you know libertarian uh, approach. If you you break away, do your own thing. Have be, have a smaller and smaller communities where rules are set by by more local authorities. Uh, that is the kind of model of government that I want to move to. So so that's absolutely fine by me. Uh, yeah, but that's but not something China is going to allow. This isn't an argument about you know Taiwanese self determination. Yeah. This is about. An I don't think we have any duty how... or burden to help them achieve that result. And in fact, clearly there is not a lot we can do to help Taiwan achieve that result that doesn't risk a larger global confrontation that would be right, much but, worse. But more specifically, this is a conversation about the fact that there is a one China policy that has been respected by both sides for strategic reasons mm -hmm. for the last 50 years or so. For strategic and that reasons, there is a, a, not a, moral reasons. Right, and there is a revisionist history going on with the United States where it's pretending as though it didn't benefit from that exact bargain. It didn't benefit from the liminal space that Taiwan has been holding and now trying to grandstand as though that it, it's, it's making this great anti-imperialist fight for Taiwanese independence when the reality is that this is a, a, a frolic and a detour from a well-established policy and you have people acting as though that this is a very different kind of fight than it was before. Again, I think it's very valuable for people to be able to just articulate the history that unfortunately isn't taught very often in the United States and is very regular, irregularly articulated by pundits on television. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Yesterday, the Biden administration announced that another $5.5 billion in aid will be sent to Ukraine, with payments set to begin with a $3 billion installment this month. Total U.S. fiscal aid pledged to Ukraine now tops over $50 billion since Russia's February invasion. In a new opinion piece, Dr. Trita Parsi contends that the U.S. is on the precipice of a three-front foreign crisis in the form of, one, a drawn-out war in Ukraine that risks escalating into a direct U.S.-Russia confrontation, two, the collapse of the Iran nuclear deal that may lead to war with the Persian Gulf power, and three, an unnecessary crisis with Beijing over Taiwan triggered by Nancy Pelosi's ill-advised trip to Taipei. Executive Vice President at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Dr. Parsi, joins us now to expand on the Biden administration's juggling act and what the president can do to de-escalate. Welcome back, Dr. Trita Dr. Parsi. Thanks so much for having me again. 
Yeah, so elaborate on what you discussed in this piece. Uh, first, it was Ukraine, Iran always going on in the background. Now we've added uh, escalation over Taiwan to the mix. Um, I guess on that last front, do you have any sense of why, why now, why this was chosen seemingly by Nancy Pelosi against the administration's wishes, but they did let her do it? You know, what is your read of that situation? Well, look, uh, tensions with Beijing over Taiwan has been brewing and will continue to brew. But what uh, Speaker Pelosi did by taking this trip against apparently the advisement of the White House is that she really pushed it forward to the fore. And now we may have a new normal in which tensions between the U.S. and uh, China, as well as China and Taiwan, of course, will be much, much higher than it has been in the past. It is unnecessary. We still have time to be able to find a way to resolve this issue. We've had a policy of uh, 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 ambiguity and one China policy for quite some time that has been working, probably should be staying put. The White House has said that it is still the policy, although uh, Biden on a few occasions have made statements that seem to indicate the opposite. We cannot afford this trifecta of conflict on the one hand with China, on the other hand, a drawn-out war in Ukraine that could escalate into a direct U.S.-Russia conflict, and then, of course, this third one, a crisis with Iran over the nuclear issue. Uh, the American people are tired. They're at odds with themselves. And the last thing they need is more foreign entanglements of this kind. Dr. Parsi, in your article, you make the case that continuing to give aid to Ukraine is just prolonging the conflict without necessarily changing the outcomes or, 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 facil or facilitating an end to the conflict. At the same time, uh, Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, put him in some political hot water with his detractors, despite being a popular uh, policy among the people and something that Trump also promised to do. Uh, what do you recommend or how do you see the, the Ukraine conflict ending when I'm sure the Biden administration has uh, some political concerns about what it would look like to withdraw at this point after being so strident in its uh, rhetorical support and financial support for Ukraine? Well, I'm not arguing or advocating that there should be a withdrawal of that support necessarily. Mm. The argument is rather that if you're going to give this level of support, then it has to be coupled with a diplomatic strategy so that the military aid you're giving is creating uh, a situation in which the Ukrainians will have a better position to be able to negotiate an end to this war. At the end of the day, this war will end with some form of negotiation. And the way any way you look at this, in fact, what the U.S. government itself is saying is that this is likely going to be a drawn-out war, should only increase our efforts to make sure that it doesn't. That means there cannot just be weapons being sent to Ukraine. There has to be much more of an effort to create a diplomatic, uh, create the circumstances that allows diplomacy to start and to succeed. Now, Biden doesn't have a magical one in which he can do this all by himself in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, the Russians have a veto on this as well. But we're not seeing the type of effort that is needed in order to create the atmosphere that is conducive to diplomacy, that is uh, create the first steps that would actually bring about some form of a diplomatic process. And to just keep on pouring money into uh, Ukraine and their military efforts without this is actually a disfavor to the Ukrainians themselves in my view. Well, to your point about whether or not there is a, a conducive atmosphere, uh, 
politically, rhetorically, and in the media here at home. Here's an interesting story. CBS News has partially retracted a documentary in which it alleged shipments of U.S. weapons to Ukraine have gone missing. The official CBS Twitter account deleted a tweet which included a late April estimate that only 30 percent of aid was reaching the front lines in Ukraine. CBS has pledged to update the movie called Arming Ukraine with, quote, mm. new information made available after filming. You know, many folks have seen this as, you know, part of uh, the broader media's uh, reluctance to report kind of truthfully on some of the kind of misconduct that's going on here in this area. Uh, indeed. And again, if you truly are want to support the Ukrainians, they should be very worrisome if it turns out that only 30% of the military aid actually is going to the Ukrainian front lines. There should be investigations. There should be efforts to make sure that it's 100% rather than taking down the story and pretending that it's not taking place. So again, if we truly want to make sure that the Ukrainians have a fighting chance so that their country is not invaded, they're not losing territory, we should be very concerned if it turns out that only 30% of the aid actually is going to Ukraine. But it's not as if and it's not as if all, you know, weapons and all forms of aid get used up necessarily right in the war effort. How can we, you know, have any certainty that weapons currently being used by the side that we are supportive of, you know, well, well one thing that could change, <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the dynamics of the political or diplomatic dynamics could change or the weapons could eventually, you know, fall into the hands of people that are more, are more hostile to us. How many, you know, how many times has that happened in the history of our, of our funding of foreign wars? It's happened frequently, hasn't it? Oh, all the time. I mean, uh, in Syria, Al-Qaeda was using American weapons against the United States. Same thing was happening in Yemen, in which al-Qaeda forces were using weapons that the United States had sold to the Saudis. How did those weapons end up in the hands of al-Qaeda? In Libya, we poured tons of weapons. All of that ended up in the hands of various militias, which then ended up spreading mayhem and instability throughout all of North Africa. So we have clear examples of just pouring weapons into a war zone can significantly backfire on us as well as further uh, destabilize the region. So when we have some data that suggests that most of these weapons are actually not going to the Ukrainians, they're going elsewhere to to um, oligarchs and other networks, then we should be, again, investigating it. Uh, and we should put a stop to those uh, diversions rather than shutting down the story and, and, and put on some sort of a media censorship. So th this is extremely concerning. And again, if you truly want to support the Ukrainians, you should be very worried about this story rather than seeking to ignore it. What are the ramifications of the U.S. foreign policy apparatus being um, so distracted or being, you know, pulled in, in so many different directions? You count at least three major directions. Of course, there are, you know, other areas of, of concern, things we're looking at. And I get, you know, we have a, a very large federal government, too large for my taste, plenty of, uh, you know, bureaucrats to look at these things. But, you know, is our, our stockpile of, of resources, our, our, our own ability to defend the homeland or to be cognizant of threats, um, is, it, is, it, is it burdened by having to look in so on all of these places at once and try to manipulate events in our favor? Well, it certainly is. I mean, we're having a military budget just keeps on growing. In fact, uh, last time Congress actually gave more money to the military budget than the president even asked. Uh, what we're seeing with this is not just 
the militarization of our foreign policy, but also the militarization of our mindset, in which we increasingly think that every foreign policy issue has a military solution. When the only metric of our power is our military power, then we will end up becoming an empire rather than doing what we should be doing right now, which is to uh, show far greater restraint, invest far more in diplomacy, and recognize that some of the greatest existential threats that we as a country and life on this planet actually face is not the threat of a nation state against another nation state, however problematic that yet may be. The greatest existential threats are pandemics uh, and uh, climate change and shared threats that require a far greater degree of human collaboration. Human collaboration that will not take place, simply cannot take place if we're continuing to pursue a foreign policy based on the belief that we have to dominate in order to be safe. And I saw someone making a point recently that uh, on a very basic level, even outside of the kind of existential concerns that I think you very rightly raised, our ability to uh, manufacture enough weapons to satisfy all of these you know, so-called uh, needs is limited and that there's only so much stuff coming out of these Lockheed Martin plants, et cetera, and that if we overinvest in sending weapons to Ukraine, it actually has a direct effect on our ability to uh, defend ourselves and um, uh, you know, source uh, materials to other parts of the world that are strategically necessary. Yeah, whatever they're producing at Lockheed Martin and some of these other places, uh, it's more than enough, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have military that is far larger than is needed in order to protect the United States. The belief that we have to intervene and dominate regions far away from us in order to keep ourselves safe is simply not true. It is proven false. It's actually made us less safe. We're not going to be more safe by having 750 bases around the world that actually drags us into military confrontations rather than the other way around. When you have that type of a network, when you have that type of a military uh, construct, you're going to be tempted far too often to use the military precisely because you have it, even when it is not necessary. And this is a key reason as to why the United States has ended up in these endless wars. Endless wars that have impoverished the country at home, turned an entire generation of Americans um, uh, against the belief that um, uh, this is the way to keep us safe, but also you know, making them realize that they're going to have a standard of living that is going to be lower than that of their parents to a very large extent because of our foreign adventures. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Parsi. Thank you so much for having me. A new Mint Press news report shows that most of the fact-checking organizations Facebook uses in Ukraine are directly funded by the U.S. government, either through the U.S. Embassy or the National Endowment for Democracy. In light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Meta announced it had partnered with nine organizations to help it sort fact from fiction. But the thing is, at least five of the orgs are directly in the pay of the U.S. government, according to Mint Press News. Staff writer at Mint Press News, Alan McLeod, joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Alan. Good to be with you. All right. So uh, how do we get to a place where a fact-checking mechanism that's supposed to be weighing in on an issue that obviously there's a lot of um, kind of partisan, uh, you know, U.S. bias around is being funded by, by someone who has very much got a dog in this fight? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there is an awful lot of misinformation going around on all sides. This is very much the case with any war. There's plenty on the Russian side, but there's also plenty 
on the Western side as well. And unfortunately, what I found was that uh, most of the organizations that Facebook has partnered with are actually directly funded by the US government, as you said, either through the embassy or through the extremely controversial National Endowment for Democracy, a group that was set up in the 1980s, more or less explicitly as a front group for the CIA. And unfortunately, well, Facebook actually got these, uh, these groups from a list compiled by the International Fact-Checking Network, uh, which is run by the Pointer Institute. And unfortunately, the Pointer Institute as well is also funded by the NED. So we have a situation that in the last five to 10 years, these fact-checking organizations have dotted up everywhere. They purport to be calling balls and strikes. But in fact, when you start drilling down into what their funding is and what their agenda is, it seems pretty clear that they are trying to pass off their own opinions and label it as fact. And that is very worrying for all of us because these groups actually have the power to influence what literally billions of people see in their news feeds, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever. Uh, these groups are always operating, trying to work with the big social media giants. So it's pretty much inescapable. And that's why we really have to be concentrating on them. Right. I think people don't quite understand, you know, how it works on uh, on Facebook Meta. So they, you know, they have these third-party fact-checking organizations like Pointer, which runs PolitiFact, which is one of the fact-checkers I've criticized on this show a number of times. Um, they've claimed, um, I, I've disagreed with the categorizations they made of numerous articles. And Facebook has these groups. So Facebook doesn't tell the fact-checkers, you know, what to say or what to do. They kind of operate independently, but then Facebook... Uh, almost enforces their rulings, right? If the third-party fact-checker says, uh, decides, oh, this article is misleading or, or wrong, then Facebook adds, you know, adds something, sometimes blurs out the image and replaces it with a, hey, this has been checked kind of thing. So Facebook is, is, has basically outsourced this job of doing the literal fact-checking to these third-party organizations and then enforces whatever their decision is. And then if you have a problem with that, Facebook kind of says, you know, informally, like, well, take it up with them. Uh, you know, they're the, the, they're the third party organization actually doing it. These organizations, the fact checkers tend to be, and, and you know, maybe you can shed some, some light on groups you've encountered, uh, in addition to the Pointer Institute, but they seem to me to often be just extremely ideological group, groups that are, are sort of activist in nature, that are certainly not more responsible than the media or more objective than the media institutions they're, they're critiquing. In fact, they seem actually often to be less rigorous or more ideologically driven, uh, even though they are, being, they are in the position to be the gatekeeper and the, the, the kind of referee, even though they're, they're clearly just as partisan, if not more partisan, than the teams in the match, to you know, tease out this example. Yeah, it really takes some gall to present yourself as somebody who can tell fact from fiction and who is the ultimate arbitrator of truth uh, to the world. But a lot of these groups are doing just that. Facebook, I think, has outsourced this to these groups, mostly for legal reasons and perhaps also because they don't really have the expertise to do so themselves. They're often actually paying these groups to do it. And as you said, if they've got a problem, they can just point you to whatever uh, group um, that they've uh, outsourced this to. But yes, these groups uh, generally tend to be quite centrist in nature, very close to the establishment. We saw in the 2016 campaign that these groups um, 
constantly went after both right-wing and left-wing challenges to the establishment. Mm. Uh, they went after, you know, certain people in the Republican Party, attacked Donald Trump as well. But certainly with somebody like Bernie Sanders, he was on the, uh, the receiving end of just incredible levels of propaganda with these things. I know Brie will know a lot about this uh, herself, but uh, I'll give you one example. Bernie Sanders was uh, viciously attacked by the Washington Post for his claim that he that his uh, average donation was $27. And the Post basically printed out an article saying that Bernie Sanders is a liar. And the reason was, was that they went through the figures and um, his average donation was actually $27.89. For them, that was big enough to just go after him, you know, ham. So yeah, I think we have to be very, very uh, critical of uh, these fact-checking organizations. In Ukraine, uh, as I said, most of them are very new. Most of them are directly uh, funded by the US government. And even the ones that weren't still have a very close relationship with either the US or other NATO countries. So um, some of the groups that uh, weren't even listed as funded by the US government were taking money from uh, the Dutch government or the UK government as well. So these aren't exactly um, ideologically or you know, uh, pure organizations. And if this was the other way around, if there was a bunch of fact checkers being paid by the KGB or by the Kremlin in some way, we would immediately see this as a problem. But somehow when it's our own side doing it, we don't see what's, uh, what's the big deal. Yeah, RT, to your point, which is very explicitly, you know, Russia TV, no no bones about it, is treated like it's a kind of an insidious, uh, you know, secretive organization that obviously has uh, been subject to a number of bans and restrictions since the war in Ukraine emerged. Uh, all kinds of state TVs get the label now on, uh, on Twitter as being state-sponsored television, and there is no similar parity uh, for uh, Western organizations that are similarly state-sponsored. That example of what the bias looks like with respect to uh, Bernie Sanders was really useful. And I wonder if you can give us a similar example of what some of the biased coverage or fact-checking about the Ukraine-Russia conflict looks like. Well, I guess just uh, going back, perhaps the most famous group that was uh, listed by Facebook as one of their partners for Ukraine is an organization called Stop Fake. It's mostly famous because Nina Yankovitz, the uh, Biden-appointed disinformation czar who had to uh, resign after there was just so much uh, opposition to this new board post that she was uh, you know, made the head of, um, she actually worked for this organization Stop Fake for a while. And you can still see these videos on YouTube where she is clearly downplaying the links between the Azov Battalion and other avowedly fascist uh, paramilitaries. And she's actually presenting them as like these community groups that are doing great work for this, for the, the local community, and they're you know helping you know veterans and they're making sure people are being fed. It really is astonishing what uh, Stop Fake was doing. And even big organizations like the New York Times have printed exposés talking about how Stop Fake is intimately connected with the neo-Nazi and white nationalist movements in the United, uh, sorry, in Ukraine. I put this question to Facebook and didn't get a response, but I think it is extraordinary that a group like this can be chosen as some sort of arbiter of what is true and what is false online. Mm. <laughs> and that uh, someone, Nina Jankowicz, someone who's, who's, that was her judgment, you know, was almost put in charge of this board, whatever it was going to do, but was being put in a position to to arbitrate or to advise the government on what is true and what is false. Uh, it's really, 
really astonishing. Uh, a fantastic reporting. This is such an important story and one we care about. So we, we so appreciate you giving us more information about it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Puck News contributor and investigative reporter Tara Palmieri was on Rising way back when to discuss her Epstein podcast, Broken, Seeing Justice. In a series of tweets this morning, Tara said that the magistrate that signed off on the warrant to search Trump's Mar-a-Lago headquarters left the U.S. Attorney's Office to represent Epstein's staff. How about that? Always an Epstein connection. Always an Epstein connection. Now, so what's been really interesting about this raid is that Almost from the moment it was reported, many Trump supporters and defenders have raised the specter that this was, you know, uh, there's some asymmetry here. You know, why haven't we investigated? Why haven't there been FBI raids uh, for all these other people that were involved in uh, the Epstein scandal? And many people who are liberal leaning or left leaning pointed out that Trump, too, was implicated in some of that. He has been accused of you know, he was accused of having, um, you know, raping a 13-year-old girl in one of the accusations. Uh, uh, Jane Maxwell and Epstein both frequented Mar-a-Lago often. They're all seen in pictures all over the place together. And it seems like an odd thing to pick on if you were wanting to defend the former president to, you know, draw any attention to Epstein, given that he has had this long history of interactions with the pair of the two. Right. Uh, yes. <laughs> How I, I, you I, say? Just don't, I don't get the angle. Well, everyone, I mean, not, but not Trump uniquely, but the sure, Clintons and all sorts of powerful people. Right. The, the, uh, the, <laughs> the English royal, the British royal family, of the course. Epstein connections are, I mean, that's, I think, something that shocked and appalled and horrified uh, people as we found more and more about this story, about Epstein's connections to the rich and powerful of both parties, of many nations all over the place. Just unbelievable levels of uh, of guilt, not just guilt by association, but like these are these are very very serious crimes. Flying on the plane, visiting the place that was this un- underage sex trafficking ring on an island, it uh, it would be unbelievable. Except it's all very well documented and demonstrated and proved. It's not. There are more documents we wish we had, obviously, to really put ever the elite and powerful people involved in this away. Right now, uh, it's basically just Jill and Maxwell uh, who gets to be punished for this because she's still around. Epstein obviously killed himself. Right. But the point that I think a lot of these, um, you know, Trump supporters are making is that if the FBI has this power to investigate these powerful people, then why not do these kind of, you know, door knock, you know, uh, unannounced raids on people who are associated or believed to be associated with this network, people who have been, you know, are known to have traveled on the flight logs, who are known to have been associates of Epstein. What's just so odd about it is that that is being brought up in the context of this raid and why Donald Trump is a relatively innocent party when he's implicated as well. And, you know, there, there are liberal, liberals, of course. I mean, if the FBI arguing- had, had compiled really good evidence that Trump was involved in something criminally sexual or something involving Epstein, uh, yes, sure I do think it. they're political yeah. enough to make that known or to or to go off of that. That would be hard to imagine them not doing something about that. If well, they certainly, and they should. If there's evidence right. that he was involved in something like that, of course, he, just like anybody else, should be prosecuted. I mean, what's so frustrating to me about this story is that a lot of the 
conservative pushback is, well, power is being weaponized in this way and it's so unfair. And that is a true critique of these systems of power that they are often weaponized in this way and it's very unfair. What's frustrating is that there only seems to be an investment in it when the powers that be are turned toward actually powerful people. The issue with the Epstein uh, situation, what's so frustrating about it is that the broad understanding is that these people have gotten off scot-free exactly because they're affluent. Every single person involved is enormously privileged. Some of the most uh, affluent people on the entire planet, the Bill Gates of the world, have the power and connections to avoid culpability here. And so, you know, there, it's not that As I disagree. As did Epstein himself the first time around, and that's what this so this magistrate that signed this warrant was uh, left uh, the public uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, I believe, to be a legal counsel for Epstein and some of his associates the first time, uh, which was, I think, more than 10 years ago, when Epstein was able to uh, get, you know, a, a very light sentence, basically some time in a county jail, and then he was even released from that and was basically under house arrest. And that was, you know, for these very serious uh, underage sexual misconduct allegations. So this this man, and now this person has returned to a public office, but that was his role in terms of, of Epstein helping Epstein and some associates. Yeah, so the, so. Al, the, the implications supposed which is, to be... Which, by, by the way, is, you know, everyone, even horrendously guilty people involved in foul, evil crimes deserve, uh, deserve legal representation. Right, so but the implication is supposed not... to be somehow that this magistrate judge turned uh, criminal defense attorney is pro-Epstein and therefore anti-Trump and that he signed this warrant. The, I honestly don't know. Was, like, I just don't understand. It seems like the, a lot of these Republicans, are, uh, you know, commentators I mean, are they saying there's some kind of implication here? I the, don't at the wall to see what sticks. And it's, it is not clear what will, uh, you know, me, meanwhile, the forward party's Andrew Yang uh, tweeted, I'm not a Trump fan. I want him far away from the White House as possible. But a fundamental part of his appeal has been that it's him against a corrupt government establishment. This rage strengthens that case for millions of Americans who will see this as unjust persecution. Uh, he, he is getting sort of uh, ratioed, as they say, oh, is he? for that tweet. It's about Even Stevens uh, reply. Even, even's not good. Even, even is a loss, as you and I know. For, yeah, which, which is interesting, because I think that what he's saying on a factual basis is true. Regardless uh, of how you feel about Trump, this is obviously going to galvanize Well, I think, some no, portion. now it's got more likes than, uh, well, no, you're right. It's, <laughs> never mind. It's going to galvanize some portion of the public. You know, whether or not that matters, if you think there's really been, you know, a crime committed here, I don't think that you can, like, Tom's test every single thing that, you know, the, the Justice Department um, does. But it is interesting that even st stating the obvious like that has gotten him into a little bit of hot water. So Yang followed up that tweet with, it seems like this was authorized by a local judge and a particular FBI office without buy-in or notification of higher levels of government. I'm not sure about that. Literally no one will believe that or make a distinction. It is probably bureaucratic, but it seems political. And then he quotes from this Politico story that everyone's been quoting from if they raided his home just to find classified documents he took from the White House, one legal expert noted, he will be reelected in president 2024, hands down. It will prove to be the greatest law enforcement mistake in history. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not sure what this legal expert's um, political prognostications yeah. are worth, but the rest of it uh, I take very seriously. Yeah, and, and one other point on that, the the point, the, the argument that this is an unprecedented action to take against a former president is a reasonable one. What some leftists have been arguing is that that is a problem. That, again, presidents, elites, important people have been free from the kind of 
criminal liability and follow-up and accountability that the rest of us have had to deal with always. And that when Bush stepped down, Barack Obama, you know, or when he lost, Barack, you know, when he stepped down, Barack Obama famously made the argument that, you know, we're looking forward, not back. We're not going to pr persecute for him in any of his war crimes or, in, or anything else. And people applauded that decision at the time. But a lot of folks on the left said that, that was a mistake, that the problem with this country is there is no uh, accountability for the people who run it into the ground uh, because uh, the presidents want to take care of the position. Presidents want to make sure, elites, powerful people want to make sure that they're not ever going to be held accountable. But there's supposed for doing to be the electoral accountability. For doing the same that the last guy did. If you break laws, the president is not above the law either. That is a, that is a principle that many people feel like should be respected. Um, but unfortunately, there is this kind of built-in presumption that, well, if you did it in the context of being the president of the states, you should have um, complete and total carte blanche to behave as you would like. But the idea is that it's it's in the people's judgment to decide who the president should be, and who the president should be, not whether or not the president has committed a crime. Well, right, but to the extent these efforts are aimed at Trump in order to make him make it impossible for him to run for president. That's well, part of the conversation. Well, to the extent potential. So we, right, if he, so, uh, so if so he committed crimes, he should be prosecuted. But, that's, but, that's right, it but it's the kind, the kind of crime matters because there are procedural crimes. There are crimes that they can get all of us for. The uh, obstruction of... They can try to get you for something, fail to find evidence that you committed that crime, and then charge you with obstruction of justice basically because you tried to maintain your innocence throughout this process. That has ensnared many people. Um, that I... I Mere procedural crimes, I don't think really anyone should be prosecuted with. Now, I take your point that, right, we all, so much of the right only freaks out when it's Donald Trump is the subject of these things. And, and in fact, prosecutorial power and police misconduct and law enforcement, you know, what we term the deep state, which is not, which it does exist is wielded against all sorts of people, Absolutely. not just enemies of, you know, what's so for it's example, called the regime. you have but... people here up in arms about the idea that something like this could happen to Donald Trump because he's Donald Trump. And presidents, again, right. Democratic presidents protect the presidency because they also want to be able to break the law. Right. Republicans then protect yeah. the Democrats because they want to yeah. be able to break You're, the law. I that's agree. the cycle. That's the problem. You're right. Meanwhile, someone like Steven Donzinger, who I know has been covered on this show, an environmental lawyer who successfully won the largest judgment against a uh, an oil company in the history of the world for the pollution that they dumped in the Amazon uh, was literally incarcerated for years on a procedural uh, claim of contempt of court. And, and all kinds of weird procedural shenanigans happened in that case where a law firm that represented the oil company was put in charge of, pr of prosecuting the case and it was a complete and total miscarriage of justice and he literally lost his freedom for over a year as a consequence. But none of that is in the framing of the people who are now hand-wringing over The U.S. Trump. government is trying, to brag, is trying to drag Julian Assange to the U.S. to imprison Correct. or maybe even kill Correct. him to punish him for, for sharing Correct. information that true, accurate information about the U.S. government that the U.S. Correct. government didn't want you to have. So the, the issue here isn't the idea that I don't agree that there can be miscarriage of justice and people uh, wielding power in a way that has, it has purely political ends. But I want to try to disaggregate that from a question about whether or not, on the whole, it is a good thing for presidents to be accountable. And if Trump people, if Trump supporters say it's not fair that you're only doing this to Trump, I would argue back that you absolutely should hold all presidents accountable in the exact same way. That includes Joe Biden, who in an early right. segment was described as a war criminal by some. That includes Barack Obama. That includes George Bush. That includes everybody who's been, been in that oval.
Yeah, maybe uh, maybe they could all all of them all our living presidents they could share a cell. Share, share a cell for their uh, <laughs> for their interesting foreign policy uh, decisions. Right. No. All right, more rising in just a minute. The House Select Committee investigating January 6th has acquired nearly two years' worth of Alex Jones's texts. The Infowar host's legal team accidentally shared the trove of messages with opposing attorneys during civil trial proceedings. CNN confirmed the messages were handed over to the committee by Mark Bankston, the attorney who represented two Sandy Hook parents who successfully sued Jones for nearly $50 million in a defamation trial that concluded last week. On January 6th, Jones breached the restricted area on the Capitol grounds, though he did not go into the building. So that was the end of the trial for now. Um, you know, I watched some of it. I thought um, Jones was in a rough spot because he'd spent a, a lot of time prior to the trial defending kind of you know, the things he'd said about, um, about Sandy Hook. And then going into this trial, it was more about how well, you know, yes, I, he, he actually acknowledged getting it wrong, and he tried to talk about how this was actually not uh, representative of his coverage in general, mm -hmm. that it was actually a small part of the kind of coverage he does. The issue for him there is, well, A, that doesn't matter. If it was wrong, it was wrong. If it was, it was live, right. it was defamatory, it was defamatory, and, the and B. proved otherwise, that right. he, had spent, he had made a, quite a bit of money off of specifically doing the Sandy Hook denialism. And his other coverage is also defamatory. Right, so right, it's right. Probably defamatory, right. not proven. And it is be, interesting. Yeah, he did lose some face because you're right. His posture outside of the context of the trial was, you know, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Da da da. In the trial, he took a little bit of that, more of a defensive posture, saying, "Hey, I was just asking questions. I wasn't making any claims about anyone specific. He claimed he he didn't even know the name of a specific, uh, you know, Sandy Hook parent." All of which, of course, was undermined, or a lot of which, anyway, was undermined by the uh, texts that were accidentally turned over. Um, I'm sure counsel got a, a really severe talking to after that. But it does undermine his his kind of uh, public persona as being fearless and you know uh, indifferent to the consequences of his actions. I'm also really curious how this outcome is going to be read in the broader context of the defamation trials that have been politicized over the course of the year, uh, namely the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, which in and of itself has gotten fresh eyes on it after some recent disclosures this past week. That will be interesting. Uh, also, obviously interesting what effect this has on January 6th stuff, if there's interesting information in the Alex Jones text. Um, I, I saw, again, a lot of media like obsession, like, oh, now we're going to get the answers. The answers were buried in Alex Jones' cell phone all along. It will show, it will prove the vast orchestrated conspiracy, probably involving Donald Trump, that, you know, this is more of this kind of resistance fanfic here. It, it would love, I think, resistance Democrats, resistance media people would love, love if Trump was finally undone because they had accidentally obtained Alex Jones' text messages is like the, it's such a... Well, look, I want to be careful here, Robbie, because... What, what would I prefer to be talking about? A $15 minimum wage, mm -hmm. Medicare for all. It's not, it's not, it's a no-brainer. 
whether or not I'm frustrated with Democrats for making more out of one-six than they do the issues that I think pertain to average Americans, I completely agree. If evidence falls into one's lap that someone like Donald Trump was breaking the law or inciting violence or doing something that is quite bad and destructive to the republic, I don't think that that's a frolicking detour. I think that you have to investigate that. Yeah, and, it's almost and, like he should be impeached and, <laughs> impeached and removed from office. We did it already. I, I want to make sure that we're not doing kind of moral cover for the underlying accusations should they become true simply because we also are not big fans of resistant liberal resistance uh, liberals. The, the fact of the matter is, you know, Alex Jones has revealed, been revealed in the context of this trial to have been doing something very bad insofar as he was defaming the parents of slain kids. Liberals and leftists have been critical of this for a very long time. He has had plausible deniability among the right for a very long time. And some people now in the context of the outcome of this trial might feel a little differently about that. I saw Glenn... Um, uh, Jimmy Dore, rather, making the argument that he defended Alex Jones's right to say what he wanted to say on his platforms because he does believe in mechanisms like uh, defamation trials mm -hmm. to hold people accountable hold people accountable better than doing censorship on social media. And I think that that so other people yeah, might feel sim similarly. Yeah. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying, well, I, you know, I'm indifferent to whatever might come out of these texts because uh, the it, you know, it will be enjoyed by people I don't like. Well, I'm not indifferent. No, I'm, I'm talking specifically about the January 6th angle. No, I, I, if he, he was found to have defamed these families, I, I think the case was persuasively made. I don't think it was particularly close. According to defamation law as it exists, he is guilty. Uh, that was the verdict, and it doesn't seem wrong or obvi obviously wrong to me. You know, you can have a broader philosophical question about, you know, should defamation law be structured in such a way that I mean, very, very few people, I might be only one of them who, who are no longer so on board with even the concept of defamation. It, it, in some sense, violates, right, free speech philosophically um, to have this category of speech you can't say. But setting that aside, sure. I'm only. I'm well, only. You can say it, but the argument is that you have to pay damages for harm you create, just like in any other tort. You know. Right, but you can create. Well, you can create harm through your speech that's not actionable because it doesn't violate what defamation law says you're violating. Well, I mean, I mean, there's a the conversation specifically about having to prove. Damages, right. like real, real damages, and obviously there were also punitive damages here. No, I'm saying, but if you believe that the answer to bad speech is more speech, we're kind of we're car we've carved out some exceptions. There are some recognized exceptions to the general free speech principle. This being one category of them, I'm not sure. I just philosophically that I necessarily agree that it is important to have this speech, this category of speech that is beyond the bounds. That's what I'm saying. It's just a philosophical. Interesting. <laughs> Do you think I'm crazy for that? I mean, this was kind of designed to stop people from dueling each other, right, over perceived slights to your reputation that don't quite matter anymore, are not, uh, are not... I just think it needs to be thought through. So, for well, example... It definitely needs to be if, thought through. In the context of the Me Too, you know, movement, mm -hmm. if, uh, you know, a woman were to say, make accusations about a man, it could be very damaging, especially in the context of a broader social movement like that. If they were not to be true, would you still maintain that he should have no legal recourse? If they, like, this is exactly what happened in the Johnny Depp trial. I mean, in, in you know, other countries that have stricter defamation and libel laws, 
bringing true claims of sexual misconduct against someone is so prohibitively difficult it routinely doesn't happen and is not even covered by the media right, but not because right. those uh, because they have made their defamation standards too too easy to prove we are not quite like that sure but but, but in the in the example that i brought up here in the united states of america would you still thinking looking at it, looking at it through that lens argue against the I don't know that being able to bring a defamation. defamation suit against someone who falsely accuses you is enough of a barrier anyway or enough of a protection or Really? Even in the context it still of happens this all Depp the time. Well, but it happens to people applauded. all the time. People are falsely accused of things all the time. Uh, it doesn't. It, we don't live in a world where there are no false accusations because it's well, possible you, to sue someone. Well, I wouldn't necessarily argue that. I think you have to prove that something was false. And in the case of, sorry, many of these many two accusations that were in fact either true or so ambiguous is that you can't prove falsity, and that's what's going on. But in these instances, I mean, again, the Johnny Depp case is, I think, really instructive. The, the implications here are obvious. I mean, a very rich and powerful person's ability to use this law to get... Look, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely not, like, speaking against that. I'm saying philosophically, uh, if you want to be the most... Like, the most maximally principled free speech stance would be you also have the right to say false things. Um, and the answer to you saying false things is then the other person says, no, that's false, and you just air different views in public. Um, that would be a philosophical point. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's. I think we it's worth little, thinking. We went a little, a little afield from the topic. I was, but I, what I was trying to say, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not strongly. I've newly come to this view, actually, from trying to consider because specifically because social media companies have protection from uh, from liability that is often criticized as unfair because um, non online media companies don't have these same protections. And people have said to me, well, isn't this a, a, a hypocrisy, in, in, in effect, a subsidy for these firms rather than the, these firms? And I'm trying to figure out how I would correct it. And one of the ways to correct it, instead of additionally making these companies liable the way all other companies are, which I think would break the entire internet, would be to just have this protection across the but board. The, not the have issue a in the social media liability. context, it's not that Twitter is saying defamatory things, it's that the platform allows individuals to say defamatory right. things. Right, and, and you so can't sue Twitter. You're not for a publisher. It. So, I mean, it's this, this distinction between whether or not you're a publisher with editorial control like the New York Times or whether or not you're simply a platform. And that's. But these platforms do exercise editorial control, right? They do, because they do. Like it's a different level of editorial control, but they are—they in fact do act with editorial control all the time. So then people will say, "Well, why are they? Why is the law different for them?" And it's just because the law is literally different from them. And they well, say, well is, is that the, fair? Is the answer then a kind of more free speech absolutism in the context of the social media account to well, that's push essentially them all what I'm Right, but them not being liable is not the same thing as the I'm person saying who maybe says the way the to fix this is to make all those other media companies no, 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 not no. liable but what for I'm the saying speech is on Twitter there. not being liable for something I say that's defamatory on there is not the same thing as your right to sue me for saying the defamatory thing. That's the, that's the distinction that I would make. But I don't mean to, to keep We went way off topic that. with this one, but hopefully it was uh, it was uh, instructive and interesting for the viewers, and we'll, something we'll talk about again. <laughs> Well, Jones isn't the only one in hot water over these leaked texts. Uh, Fox News host Tucker Carlson is reportedly, quote, 
shooting himself, scared that the messages will be leaked to the general public. The Daily Beast reports that Carlson and Jones text on a daily basis and have made public those messages would be highly embarrassing for uh, Carlson. Okay, I have to interrupt. The Daily Beast is a trash publication, a gossip rag that has no idea what Tucker Carlson is thinking. And if it would, it would deeply surprise me if he's worried or scared about anything in his text message with Alex Jones. He, adore, he has a quote on Alex Jones' book. You can read, like, you can read his, like, he has not made any secret or shied away from kind of. uh, I don't think that's the argument, Robbie. I adore my best friend, and they don't, I don't think they've done anything wrong, and they're certainly not Alex Jones, but I definitely would be shitting myself, in quotation marks, if our text messages were released, because that's the nature of private correspondence. There's any number of embarrassing things that people say privately that are out of step with their public persona, that are personal, intimate details, and, you know, as a lawyer who spends most of your time you know, looking through discovery as a, as a young attorney, one of the earliest lessons you learn is how little you should really commit to print. And I think anybody in any context should be very nervous, especially not to mention people who are so high profile and not to mention people who have now had a demonstrated history of going against the law as Alex Jones has done. And given the high profile nature of Tucker Carlson, some of what has been revealed in the context of the 1-6 hearings where other Fox News hosts uh, were shown to have been reaching out, texting Donald Trump, encouraging him not to say things that could be characterized as incitement um, because they understood their own culpability and how that would be so difficult to defend on their own programs. Given that we know all of that has already happened, I would think it would be unusual for anyone who has ever texted with Alex Jones not to have concerns about how those texts will be received by the public should they come to light. I think it's an utter fantasy to think this worries Tucker Carlson. In the least bit of fantasy that, of course, the Daily Beast would like to participate in, but uh, we shall see. And tomorrow on Rising, Max Alvarez and Pamela Denise Long will be back for our Rising panel. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can also catch us on the Plex TV app. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.